Hey, it's Pastor Mark Vega. Welcome to Now You Know. This is our podcast, and we're going to be dropping a fresh episode every Monday. We're going to tackle tough issues, smash through taboos, and debunk all kinds of myths every Monday. So I want you to share it. I want you to subscribe, let someone know. There's going to be a lot of material, a lot of content. We've compiled some amazing material that I think is going to be beneficial to you. Whether you're an educator, whether you are a minister, a pastor, whether you're a blue-collar, white-collar, leadership development, I mean, we're going to do a little bit of everything in this podcast, but you're going to be blessed. And it will not be a time waster. It's going to be beneficial and advantageous for you to be a part of what we believe is an amazing podcast. My name is Mark Vega. And today, I want to talk to you from the subject, what's love got to do with it? We're going to be talking about relationships. We're going to be talking about the foundation of relationships. And I know there are a lot of questions. I know there's a lot of topics, a lot of books, a lot of podcasts, a lot of seminars, a lot of conferences on relationships. But for me, we're going to make it simplistic. We're going to make it easy to understand. And you touch on points that I think are sometimes forgotten, forgotten. They're forgotten points. And because of this, sometimes we make and we can complicate matters that should be very, very easy to understand. Jesus said it this way, he who has an ear, let him, let him listen, let him hear, right, to what the Lord is saying. In other words, pay attention because I'm going to offload a principle. It might be an axiom that you could use for the rest of your life. And so Let's kick off today. What's love got to do with it? You know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, Jesus is talking and he's given us a story. And he says it this way. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The same rain came, the winds blew, the streams rose, the winds, and it beat against that house. But the Bible says it fell with a great crash. In other words, it received the same elements. It received the same. It was castigated the same. And that's what life does, right? Life loves to chastise. It likes to castigate. It likes to beat. It likes to tear down. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, what's, what's going to make the difference in longevity is not what you build, but where you build on, what will be the foundation. <clears throat> and if the foundation is on the rock, it's going to uphold. It's going to be able to receive and sustain the attacks that are coming from the outside sources. So make sure it's not the house per se, because that same house, you can build it, but if it's on sand, it'll fall with a thud, with a crash. So make sure it's built on foundation. Now I have to say something. On foundation being the rock, 
I think sometimes when we talk about relationships, we complicate it. We complicate it to such a degree that sometimes when we talk about relationships, think about relationships, whenever we are counseling and giving people a wisdom on relationships is interesting, but I, I think of it as being part of a romantic, of this romantic psychotic delusion where the substratum is, I'm the fairest of the land. The delusion is an entire fairy tale. And that's what romantic love in the Western Hemisphere has turned into. From a very early age, I mean, let's face it. Come on, we're indoctrinated to believe in fairy tales and Disney classics. You're encouraged to fantasize that you're, you're sheltered almost from reality. And you're encouraged to fantasize. You imagine you're playing with your dolls. If you're a little girl, you play with the, the Barbie doll and Barbie marries Ken and and they play together, they get married, they jump in the car, and they drive, they drive off to the sunset, right, in the convertible Corvette. They live in a two-story house, right? I mean, when you're a child, when you're a young girl, this is what occupies, right, the mind, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that when you're five. But when you're 25 and you've been inoculated with this, and this is really some of the tenets that you believe that somebody's going to whisk you away, somebody's going to save the day, somebody's going to put you in their convertible and drive past all your troubles, then it becomes problematic. All the while, while the little girl was playing with her Barbie doll, us boys, we were fantasizing and playing with action figures. I had, I was born in the 70s. I had G.I. Joes. I had Evil Knievels. I had $6 million man, the hero, the firefighter, the police officer believing that I'm a fireman, a superhero, a doctor, because I, I, for me, it was all about saving. It was all about protecting. It was all about whisking the beautiful girl at the end of my imaginary story, right? Problem with that is that, like I said before, we become so ingrained and saturated in the fantasia of our childhood that we, at the same time, were sheltered from reality and all throughout our, our adolescent years, we are encouraged to fantasize and to just let our minds run right past reality. But when you reach adulthood, you're forced to face reality and eliminate all fantasies. And the worst thing for an adult is to suffer from the Peter Pan syndrome. Peter Pan syndrome says, I don't want to grow old. Right? And we become intoxicated with the fantasia, but it doesn't last. We have the delusion expectation that the person is going to complete us, is going to rescue us, is going to bring us fulfillment. It's going to bring us something that we've never had or fulfill us in ways that we've pondered on our entire lives. And notice the theme. Notice the anthem. Everything is about me, myself, and I, which is diametrically opposed to the special sauce that actually makes relationships work right? Which is negotiating, which is compromising, which is giving allowances. There's nothing wrong with teaching our children to be courageous, to be brave, to be fearless, to be confident, to be determined. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, there was a Harvard Business Review where behaviorist theorists, they study the whole reward system, which is derived from work, work with laboratory animals, some of which are stock options, for top executives, right? 
Some reward systems are stock options. Others are special privileges given to employees of the month and commissions for salespeople. Incentives can come in ways of money, vacations, banquets, plaques, right? Days off. The list and the variations go on and on and on, right? Because the motivation is limitless. Research suggests that by and large, rewards succeed at securing one thing only. And that's called temporary compliance. In other words, when it comes to producing lasting change in attitudes and behaviors, rewards like punishment are strikingly ineffective. So once the rewards run out, people usually revert to old behaviors. And studies show that offering incentives for, let's say, losing weight, I have subscribed for those, quitting. Smoking, let's say. You want to quit smoking. You want to quit eating. You want to start using seatbelts, right? Or you want to act generously. And you want to make some changes. Here's what Harvard says. Harvard says that at the end, that entire effort was worse than doing nothing at all. Why? Here's why. Harvard says because we cripple commitment. We cripple commitment. In other words, we're not used to keeping our commitment. We cripple commitment whenever we give every Little League baseball player a trophy. Even Lazy Larry, who would rather not come to practice while everybody's running, He's hanging out in the dugout, drinking all the Gatorade, eating the team out of the team donut bag, and he doesn't want to run. He doesn't want to play. He doesn't want to hit. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to sweat. But at the end of the season, the coach is pressured to giving Lazy Larry a trophy, just like every other player, especially the players that grind it, that sweated it out that made it to practice, that played in the rain, that hit, that slayed, that were team players. There's almost a pressure, right? There's almost a pressure to not offend anyone. It's part of the Western civilization. We enable bad behavior. We lack the moxie to become disciplinarians. And we create a culture that is emotion-driven well, you don't have to earn it at all. You don't have to earn it because they're going to give it to you anyways. It appears to me that we've mastered the art of becoming experts, right, in things that really, really do not matter. And so here's where I'm going with this, right? No wonder, we're talking about relationships. No wonder if this is part of our upbringing and this is part of the Western Hemisphere way of indoctrinating, orientating our kids. No wonder divorce rate is at 53%. No wonder. We're almost setting ourselves up to fail in anything that has to do with commitment. And Lazy Larry, is, he's six years old, but see, he's soon to be 16. He's soon to be 16. And he's going to want to be a part of themes and uh, things and teams, etc. 
But before you know it, Lazy Larry, who gets everything he wants and doesn't have to work for it, is going to create a system by which when the going gets tough, in his case, the tough don't get going. When the going gets tough, Larry taps out. When the going gets tough, I tap. If I'm going to go for the track team, I play Little League, but I want to go track. And I'm, I'm okay with track. I'm okay with going to the meets. I'm okay when I'm running in front of people. But if I have to travel too much, or it's, if they're pushing me to practice too much in the heat, I don't like it, I'll tap out. And then I'll sign up for the Boy Scouts. And if the Boy Scouts start pushing me and holding me accountable, I'll tap out of that. But you see, Lazy Larry is no longer that cute six-year-old. Now he's growing up. He's 16. Now he's 17, and he wants to tap out of classes. He wants to tap out of school. He wants to tap out of relationships. He wants to tap out of anything that's going to be difficult. And guess what, guys? Everything and anything and everything in life that 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 is good for you requires perseverance, requires persistence requires discipline, right? We know that. And so now he's in church and he wants to be part of the worship team, but the worship team leader, she's established that you got to practice. You can't just get up there and play on Sundays. You have to practice. And so he's going to quit on that. Before you know it, Lazy Larry has quit on absolutely everything that he has signed up for the moment it got difficult. And now he's quitting churches, and now he's not only quitting churches, but he's quitting ministries, he's quitting jobs, he's, he's even quitting marriages. He's quitting on anything that's going to require tenacity, fervency, zeal, perseverance, persistence. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, when it comes to relationships, Pastor Mark, the enemy... I think he ambushed the sanctity of marriage. I would say so. I would say so. But can I, can I submit to you, the devil, the devil didn't start sabotaging your relationship in the honeymoon or in the early months of figuring out married life. Instead, Satan began his work before you made it to the altar, before you made it to dating. You see, the reason why Jack and Jill sit in divorce court is because even though Jack and Jill were raised in a Christian home, it was more important for mom and dad to uphold a family image than to teach them commitment, covenant, pledge, promise, oath, honor, responsibility. I submit to you, I've seen people be celebrated because that's what we do in America, right? We celebrate longevity. And regardless if it's healthy or not, we'll celebrate it. And so we'll celebrate the couple that's been married for 30 years. Wow, 30 years. That is incredible. What we don't know is that the last 20 years of those 30 years, they've been sleeping in separate rooms and there's no compatibility. There's no emotional. There's no intellectual compatibility. There's no emotional compatibility. There's no physical touch. There's no intimacy, be it emotional, physical, psychological. Let me just tell you, we're really not celebrating them 30 years of marriage. We're celebrating 30 years of them not getting divorced because for the past 20 years, they've been two strangers living under the same roof. 
So are we really celebrating health from what Jesus is talking about? Got to be more than love. And I think Tina Turner had it right in 1983-84 when she sang, What's Love Got to Do With It? She was asking. And then she says, but a temporary emotion. Tina Turner, I think, was right. She was being prophetic. Ain't that crazy? Legs and all. She was being prophetic. What do you mean? We have allowed the four-letter word called love to define relationships and marriage. And let me just tell you, love is just an emotion. Love has to be founded on something eternal. Love has to be founded in Jesus' own words, on a rock. On the rock. A lot of people say, what's the secret? What's what, what, what's the secret to marriage? Well, the secret to marriage is Jesus. That's a bit abstract. I think the secret to marriage is commitment. Commitment. You first commit and love will follow. Western Hemisphere, we, we want love to lead and commitment lags. Commitment doesn't always follow love. But can I tell you, love always follows commitment. Come on, guys. When we accepted Jesus, you don't even need to love him to be saved. The Bible doesn't say you got to love him to be saved. It says, with the heart, men believe, believe, not love, believe, and with the mouth, confess. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. So you don't even need to love Jesus to be saved. But to stay saved, you got to love him. It starts at commitment, and then love follows. Did you get that? I said it starts at commitment, and then love follows. So from household chores to skipping practices, rehearsals, quitting has become part of our constitution. I mean, when the going got tough, all some people have ever done is quit, and, and all they've done is quit teams and jobs and classes and majors and ministries and now marriage, and even worse, some are quitting on life. Isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that even with that quit gene, they were still rewarded? I mean, come on. Have you gone, have you gone, I'm speaking as a pastor, have you gone to some of your pastor's offices lately? They're usually full of certificates on the wall that they didn't go to school for. I'm speaking from experience. Many, many, many pastors have paid for their PhD. They wrote a thesis. $3,000, they send $3,000 and write a thesis at Bougie University so that they can get a certificate that says that they have a PhD, maybe professional hairdresser, but didn't go to school for 12 years. And here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that this is, you're talking about the upper echelon. When you, when you talk about ministers, you're talking about pastors and leaders. Leaders, if leaders are living in a facade and in a fantasia, could you imagine the house of God? 
I was taught that if there's mist in the pulpit, there'll be fog in the pews. But we're a title-driven, degree-driven, we are a trophy-driven people. Even if it's a wall full of false accolades, but that very wall, that, that very wall that I want to show off is exactly what disempowers me from telling Jack and Jill, you're not ready for marriage yet. And that's the reason why their engagement is marked with sexual impurity and lack of commitment. Because the leaders, the cream of the crop, those, those that God has called to lead, to teach, to show, to become the brand ambassadors for commitment, we are failing at our task. Why are Christians four times more probable to end up divorced than Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Hindus, and arranged marriages? Can somebody tell me that? I'll tell you why, because somebody told us that as long as Jesus is the center of our marriage, it'll work out, and we don't even know what that means. Don't you see? What's important to Christ is the foundation. The foundation Christ is referring to is commitment. We think love is what makes a marriage work, but love is a fluctuating emotion that wavers and it oscillates. The secret sauce, the tenets that makes marriage work is going to be commitment. When you compare the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere, you're going to see that arranged marriages work because of the commitment. The substratum, the bedrock, is my obligation. Isn't that crazy? I saw a movie called Overboard, and if, if you enjoy movies, it's a movie that was first done in the 70s with, with Goldie Hawn and, and, and Kurt Russell, and then it was remade several years ago. And, and in that movie, Overboard, and I highly recommend you watch that movie, but in that movie, you see how commitment, commitment can usher in love as opposed to love ushering in commitment. If you understand the dynamic of arranged marriages, arranged marriages are really two strangers that come to an agreement because they want to honor their parents. Honor. They want to honor. Honor still exists in some nations, in some cultures. They want to honor their parents, and this is what they do. They honor their parents. They'll listen to their parents. They'll obey their parents. That sounds foreign. All of that sounds so foreign sometimes. But they'll obey their parents, and they'll be willing to give the relationship a shot, ready, even though they don't love each other. How about this one? They don't even know each other. But when they start living out the commitment they made to their parents and to each other, you can't stop love from avalanching both of them. But we've been emotionally driven, nothing else. We've been emotionally driven since we were young. When we were young, two years old, we don't want spinach, we didn't want carrots, we didn't want vegetables. And our parents would say, si no te gusta, no te lo coma. If you don't like it, you know that you don't eat it. Get out that not. Then you're not gonna eat anything. Before you know it, we were actually boycotting not the vegetables, but boycotting things that were essential and things that we would need later on in life 
like commitment. I'm going to tell you, I've only been a pastor for the last 13 years. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I can tell you this. I can tell you that a lot of the fractures that I've seen in my office comes in the inflection point of commitment. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5.37. All you need to say is simply yes, commitment, or no. Commitment, anything beyond this, comes from the evil one. That's why God doesn't understand when you say, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Or words like, I'm falling out of love. I don't love you anymore. So what? This has nothing to do with love. This has to do with commitment. Remember when we were on the altar? We looked at each other's eyes. We cried in the presence of witnesses and the minister who was officiating the wedding. And we said words like, till death do us part. We said words like, for better or for worse. We said words like, in sickness and in health, I will love you. I will care for you. I will be there for you through thick and thin. Well, this is thin, baby. I need you to be there for me. I got to be there for you. Here's what Jesus said. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice because it had its foundation on the rock. Can you say that would be on the rock, on the rock, on the rock? Let me just tell you, marrying for love, in my opinion, has made marriage more fragile. As a commitment or bond, modern marriage seems weaker than ever before. Over 50% first marriages and 65% of second marriages and 88% of third marriages end up in divorce. I want you to really take a look at your relationships. Assess your heart. Assess your commitment level. And I want you to ask yourself, have I committed to live as unto the Lord? Because if I commit to live for God, I'm going to live for things that matter most. We talk about equality, but the last time I checked about equality, Equality demands conditions in which we respect each other's autonomy. People make a mistake that you should feel something like fairness, like justice. And let me just tell you, it is not fair. I did this three times this week. And you only did it two times this week. And the other person will say, well, it's not fair that I got up three times this week with the baby. And you didn't get up not even one time. And all of a sudden, equality is demanding, it demands conditions in which, right? Listen, listen, please understand this. Please understand this. It is partnership. We love, we give allowances. We commit to do that. We commit to meet each other. Not 50% of the week, 100%. There'll be days where you're weaker than me. There'll be days when I'm weaker than you. But we made a vow before God and man. Our kids are watching. And what lays in the balance is not only our kids, it's their kids and the kids that will come from them, our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren. And the Bible says up to a thousand generations. Why does the devil attack marriages? Because he knows, he knows that the culprit of his devastating defeat are going to be our offspring. And so what brilliant strategy to try to defeat, to destroy, to break 
to cause havoc in our relationships so that that offspring will never come to pass. I remember back in the day there was a movie called Terminator. Many of you remember that, Terminator. Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor was attacked by a future cyborg played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why? Because she was destined to have child that would defeat the cyborgs. That was Hollywood, 1984. Let me just tell you, sounds a lot like scripture. The enemy knows your potential, your power, individually and corporately. And he's going to do everything in his power to discourage you. Everything in his power to make you believe that you have to feel the euphoric, the fluttering, the butterflies of love and disregard commitment. Nothing is further from the truth. Commitment is what's going to bring longevity of life, of marriage, and of ministry. This is Pastor Mark Vega, and I'm going to pray for you that God would help you in your relationship with him and your relationship with others. Father, I thank you for those that are listening. Father, allow us, allow us to evaluate our hearts and our minds psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Father, and help us forgive those that offended us and help us ask for forgiveness to those that we have offended. Lord, have your way in our lives. For those that are married, that today there will be a resounding anniversary, that today we will go back to that first love, not only the first spiritual love with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that first, that conjugal love, that first love, that first time that you would refresh that love, that you would fan the flames, fan the embers, that they would once again become flames once again in our hearts. And that, Lord, what you unite, we declare, let no man separate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to follow this podcast. Share with your friends and family. It's available everywhere podcasts are streamed. We'll see you next Monday again. This is Pastor Mark Vega. Now you know.